Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Greg Mankiw, Professor of Economics at Harvard University. I was kindly invited to participate in Professor Mankiw's keynote presentation at the 12th Annual Economics Teaching Conference sponsored by the National Economic Teaching Association and Cengage Learning. And I'd like to say a big thank you to John Carey of Cengage for this invitation. They wanted something different and invited me along to interview him in front of a live audience online and within the conference room. We talk about why he decided to study economics, it's not what you think, his writing process, carbon tax, healthcare and economics education, and if technology will disrupt the traditional learning process that we know of today. Greg also takes a number of questions from the audience who attended that day. This interview was actually recorded as a video, so if you prefer to watch it, you can check out the YouTube channel Economic Rockstar and it should be there, or visit economicrockstar.com forward slash Greg Mankiw and you'll find a link, along with other links, books, resources and writing tips shared by Professor Mankiw. So visit economicrockstar.com forward slash Greg Mankiw. At the end of the interview, I never got to say it, but Greg, you are an economic rockstar. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. I'm a big believer in actually paying for experiences rather than things. Things just accumulate dust, experiences accumulate memories. When I'm in the classroom, I try to represent the economics profession as faithfully as I can. And I think relatively few economists today think, oh, how do I think about the world fundamentally through Marx's dust capital? I think ultimately what's important for the student is to be infected by the enthusiasm of the instructor. And that, that's what's really important. If the instructor is enthusiastic about his, his or her field and conveys that enthusiasm to the student, that's going to get the student enthusiastic. And there's no one way to sort of generate that enthusiasm. You know, different people have different interests. Good afternoon. Everybody have a good morning? I hope so. There was, seemed to be a lot of great sessions this morning. I'm very excited about this talk that we're having here at lunchtime. But first, I wanted to thank um, a few people. We, you know, we, we come to cities with the NETA conference, and, and I'm always gratified by the support that we get from the local community, the local schools. And, and I know that uh, Brad Camp, who is the chair um, at the University of South Florida, opened the sessions uh, yesterday, and, um, and it's great to have uh, Tony and Erica and Samanak from University of uh, South Florida, and then our folks from Hillsboro, uh, and, and that is Andrea and Zach are here. Um, so thank you so much for, for, for your support and, 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 and for coming. Um, Greg called me um, sometime this summer, about to talk about his keynote at NETA, and, and Greg has given a keynote for, for this is the 12th time. And he said, you know, instead of a static standing at the podium type of thing, could I get somebody to interview me? And I, and I had just recently seen an interview that Greg actually had done with Janet Yellen, and I can't remember where it was, where they were interviewing and sitting. And I said, you know, that was, that's pretty cool. I, yeah. And then I said, you know, who's going to interview Greg? Well, it's a, it was a no-brainer. Uh, if anybody has followed Frank Conway, the economic rock star, 
You know what a great podcast program he has, and he has interviewed economists all over the place. And uh, I said, we got to get Frank Conway. Well, Frank Conway's in, you know, Frank Conway teaches in Waterford Institute of Technology in Ireland. Frank is a lecturer at Waterford Institute of Technology. His podcast gets hundreds of thousands of, of click-throughs. Um, if you are not a fan of his, go to economicrockstar.com, and you will soon become a fan of his. And I'd like to welcome to the stage Frank Conway. And the next person needs no introduction, but that never stopped me before. Greg Mankiw is the, is the Robert Barron Professor of Economics at, at Harvard University. And right now, today, as we're eating lunch, there are more students learning introductory economics from Greg Mankiw's materials all over the world, by the way, in 20 languages, by far any other resource for introductory economics, and, and that speaks volumes of how, you know, how clear Greg is in explaining economics. Greg, you know, has done work in macroeconomics in all the major journals. Walsh, uh, he does a monthly column in the Wall Street, is it the New York Times? New York Times, from 2003 to 2005, he was the head of uh, the President's Council of Economic Advisors. So I would like to introduce to the stage Greg Mankiw. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. Um, it's great to finally meet you, Greg. And what I'd love to ask you starting off is, based on your initial love of astronomy and then your career, your short career in law, what made you focus on economics, firstly as a college grad and secondly as a profession? When I, when I went to college, um, I thought of myself as doing math or science. In fact, my first declared major in college was um, math mathematics. Just stuck with it for a few years before I switched. And I didn't even take economics courses when I started at college. But I started dating this young woman who was also a freshman at the time. And uh, she was taking economics courses. And she would come back from her classes and tell me what she was learning. And I said, well, gee, this is really kind of interesting. And I picked up her textbook and started reading her textbook, which was Lipsy Steiner, actually. Some of you remember that one. And I thought, that was, I thought it was sort of more interesting than anything I was learning in any of my classes. And um, so I immediately got interested in economics. And I, the next semester, I started taking economics. And I, there's a, I took a course from Harvey Rosen. Uh, he was a great pr professor at Princeton. And, uh, and I, I really loved working, taking a course from him. So I, I then went and uh, asked him for a job. And I knew almost no economics. I'd only taken the principles course. But he's looking for somebody to do some Fortran programming. And I, I had taken a computer science course in high school, so I knew some Fortran programming. And they were punch cards, the old sort of style of mainframe. And so he hired me to do that. And so there's really this summer working for Harvey after taking the course from him. It sort of sent me in my way. A small postscript to the story, though. I'm going to ask what happened to that young woman. <laughs> we dated for a few years. We then broke up. But I know what's happened to her right now. She's now married to this guy named Tim McCain, who's likely to be the next vice president of the United States. <laughs> so, small world. 
that textbook obviously didn't work out then in terms of the relationship that you first when you first discovered economics. But since then, you have actually, as we all know, are you're one of the best sellers in terms of your principles of economics books. And I'd love to know why, firstly, did you write a textbook? Did you feel that there was an absence in terms of the content that was there? Was it a quality? Was it the the color, the graphical representations of the illustrations? Well, I've, I've, written, I've written two textbooks. The, the first one was, I wrote was an intermediate macro text. And uh, what happened there was I, I, I'd gotten tenure at Harvard, and I knew that they needed me to teach intermediate macro. And, in fact, I, so I kind of knew that was sort of in my future. Indeed, I, I did teach intermediate macro for basically the next 15 years. And I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to spend all this time preparing lecture notes to give lectures, how much more work could it be to write the book to go along with it? And so I signed a contract with a publisher to write the book. Well, it turned out it's a lot more work to write the book than just prepare lecture notes. I, but I didn't know that. I was young and naive. So I then spent the next four years, roughly, I mean, writing that textbook. And that came out in, I think, 91 or something like that. But I also found I liked doing it. I kind of enjoyed the pedagogy. I enjoyed I enjoyed writing, the, the act of writing and thinking about what's the best way to explain stuff. So I kind of found it an enjoyable activity. Uh, now, when that book came out and started... Selling well, publishers then approached me and said, how about a principles book? And for an economist, that's an exciting challenge because that, that's the biggest market out there. So if you want to reach the maximal number of students, writing a principles text is, sort of the, is, is, is the way to do it. And so I that signed a contract in, I guess, 92 to, to write a, that. So that book came out in around 96. took another four years to write that. And now I'm on these two treadmills where I sort of, I'm almost, almost always revising one, one of the two books. Actually, I'm, this, is, this is now one of the small windows of opportunity where I'm not working on either text. Because the principal's text come with the new editions and I'm put to bed. I'm not quite working the intermediate one yet. But it's, it's sort of my life's work. And indeed, I'm sure that when someday somebody writes my obituary, the principal's economics textbook will be my life's biggest contribution by, by a large margin. So it's an enjoyable experience, as you said, but surely there's some hesitations or drawbacks or difficulties that you might have encountered along the way. Well, you know, I think you have, I, I enjoy doing it, but I'm not sure most people would enjoy this kind of work. I mean, I, I enjoy worrying about word order and I, I, working through editorial comments. I should say, by the way, thank you to lots of people in this room because a lot of people have read books and give me feedback either formally through the publisher or informally, but just by sending me emails saying, I read something in your book. What do you think about this? And so I really enjoy figuring out what's the best way to present things and talking to editors and other instructors like myself, try to figure out so what's the best way to do it. So I kind of enjoy the process, but I've known other people who have not found it, found it as enjoyable. It does require a fair amount of discipline. I think that's the, hard, that's the hardest part. You know, I've had friends who tried to write this and said, oh, I'm behind schedule. I'm going to spend this weekend writing three chapters. Well, that, that's a recipe for failure. I'm... I try to be extremely disciplined about what my writing. So, I, you know, when I'm writing the books, I would wake up and it was the first, after sending my kids off to school, it was the first thing I would do every day. I forced myself to basically write two pages every day. And two pages is not that much. But if you write two pages literally every single day for a year, 365 days, you've got a pretty good-sized book at the end of the year. So um, that was sort of my, I think that's the hardest part, is just sort of staying disciplined and just keeping at it every day. And I can only imagine how different the first edition was compared to what you're doing right now. And how important is a partnership with Cengage to have that or to embrace the t different types of pedagogy that we're currently experiencing in terms of online education and all the great work that some of our people here doing The Economist are doing? Yeah, it's changing radically. The technology's changed radically. When I, when I just to give an example of how much the technology changed, when I turned in the first ed edition of my Intermediate Macro book, so this is the first edition of my first book, I told the publisher, 
oh, I'm going to send this to you on disks. There, of course, wasn't an email then, but I had this, it was all in word processing. And I said, I'm going to send this to you electronically. And they said, no, no, we don't need that. We don't need disks. We don't deal with this. Just print it out and send us a hard copy. They want to literally typeset the whole thing again. I said, no, 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 no. I just spent all these years making sure their errors were free. I don't want you to some to type in the whole book again. I said, no, they said, no, no, no. So I had to fight with them to get them to accept it on disk. Now, of course, if I said, told Michael I was going to send them hard copies, so he would think I was nuts. Um, you know, now everything's electronic. And indeed, the, the, not only is the writing of it electronic, but the, the pedagogy is electronic, um, where increasingly the number of people using online books has been rising. I'm actually kind of old-fashioned. I'm a bit of a Luddite when it comes to these things. But actually, for the first time this year at Harvard, we're, we're using the online book with the MindTap product. Um, and it seems, to, it seems to be going well. It, it's a, but it's a learning process for me. As I said, I'm an old-fashioned guy. I like sort of typical old-fashioned books. But the students seem to resonate with sort of online products much quicker than a 50, 58-year-old man does. I'd love to ask you something different, actually, Greg. Um, if you were a dog, <laughs> what would you call yourself? And what conversation would you have with Keynes and Tobin, your own dogs? <laughs> Gosh, I, what, would, what would I call myself? Um, I think Mankey was a pretty good dog name. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, I, I you know, I, I, I've had two dogs uh, in my adult life. One, the, old, the first one was Keynes, now passed away, and the current one is Tobin. And I, I did that because I mean, they're both Keynesians, and so they're, and they're full of animal spirits. Um, uh, but also, these are two economists, so I, you know, deeply respect. I mean, there's two. I mean, I'm a, I'm a macroeconomist primarily in my research. These are two of the most important macroeconomists of the 20th century. I never got to meet Keynes. He died, you know, long before I was around. Uh, but I did get to know Tobin a little bit, and we went to some conferences together. And I was a young assistant professor, and he was, uh, I think, probably already emeritus at that point, but still active in conferences. And he was just, he was a great. Great human being. I was actually very pleased, by the way, when the, the student newspaper at Harvard sort of mentioned that I had a dog named Tobin after The Economist. I got an email from one of his nieces. And this is the thing I didn't know about James Tobin, but apparently James Tobin was a lover of dogs. He was a big dog person himself. And he said she was so delighted that her family was happy that somebody had named their, a dog after, their, after her uncle. <laughs> Before we go on to some of the policy issues, I'd like to transition maybe from your own perspective in terms of the new Keynesian economics that you've adopted through Stanley Fisher's influential yeah. work and the micro foundations to macroeconomics, which is something that is, I suppose, current at the moment in terms of trying to understand those particular aspects of the macro. How important is that to you in terms of trying to understand the macroeconomy and how that influenced your work and policy? I mean, when I entered grad school, it was 1980. And that was sort of the heyday of rational expectations, real business cycle work. Um, and there was a sense that sort of Keynesian economics was sort of fading away. And, and if you read some of the stuff that um, Tom Sargent and Bob Lucas had written, you get this sort of sense that Keynesian economics was some terrible detour. And I was a student of Alan Blinders at Princeton and then Stan Fisher was a dissertation advisor at MIT. And uh, I, I got the sense when I was sort of studying macro that that was just wrong. That, that, that yes, maybe there were some valid critiques from the Chicago School of Keynesian economics, but there's a lot of truth in Keynesian economics. And I didn't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So a lot of the work that I did early in my career, along with people like David Romer and Olivier Blanchard, was tried to put Keynesian economics on a sort of a more solid theoretical foundation. And that's what the whole new Keynesian paradigm was about. 
I think in some sense that was a, that whole approach was has been victorious in the sense that the mainstream today is not really a real business cycle approach. I don't think it's the main business cycle approach now. The consensus now is some new Keynesian model, sometimes called dynamic stochastic DSGE models with sticky prices. But you can you can call them different things. But it were it's a work that was built on stuff that start was that that Stan Fisher students were doing in the the early 80s, and I was and I was one of those. And you see it prominently in Federal Reserve policy today. Stan Fisher was vice chair of the Fed. Janet Yellen, chair of the Fed, both sort of did work on in this sort of early New Keynesian uh, literature. And uh, so I, I, I view, I view my, 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 my as being a bit player in a what I think was ultimately a quite a successful literature. About 30 minutes ago before the interview, I discovered and I thought you were a pigeon fancier when I saw that you, I read it incorrectly saying um, where you had a pigeon club and it wasn't, it was a pigu club. Oh, pigu club. <laughs> so um, <laughs> what was the reason for setting up this pigu, pigu club? And I know some of the members you have included is Neil Young and Bill Gates. And yeah. Um, well, you know, I remember when I was a student reading about the idea of corrective taxes, the taxes can be used to correct externalities and mark, make markets work better. It was a tremendously powerful idea. Um, and I've, I've really, I've thought that really since I took my principles course. And my, when I teach principles, I teach that as a really a tremendously powerful idea in economics. When I turned to sort of thinking about public policy and sort of writing op-eds or advising policymakers, I, I, I think of this as really an important idea that's underappreciated by the public at large. I think I, first, I wrote my first sort of op-ed on the virtues of higher gasoline taxes about 20 years ago when I was writing it. Well, at that time, I was a columnist for Fortune magazine. And I've had, and I, over the years, have probably every, I don't know, year or two, I'll write another column about the virtues of corrective taxes. And I created this fictional club called the Pigou Club, which is really a rhetorical device explaining how there's lots of economists and pundits on different sides of the political spectrum who basically favor this idea of higher corrective taxes. It's not a popular idea with the general public, but I think I, the more we preach to the general public that this is a good idea, the more likely it is that we'll actually get something like that, because I'm a big believer in that all politicians will ultimately do what the public wants. And so as long as we correct the, convince the public that a corrective tax is a good idea, then we'll, we'll get in policy. So, for example, Washington State right now, if anybody here from Washington State, pay attention, because on, the, on, the, on your ballot in November is a revenue-neutral carbon tax uh, at the state level. Basically, they're going to basically raise the carbon tax, or impose a carbon tax, and lower the state sales tax. There's some other tax reductions too, but the most of the revenue is used to reduce the state sales tax, which is really sort of a, a great policy. Even though, even if those who aren't in Washington State, on October 30th, turn on to the National Geographic Channel. I think it's eight or nine o'clock. I could check. There's a new movie out called uh, Before the Flood, which is a movie about climate change, produced and, and narrated by Leonardo DiCaprio. It talks about the, the challenges of climate change, and I actually have a small bit part in there. I'm all on the screen for maybe all of 45 seconds, preaching the virtues of a carbon tax. Actually, right after Elon Musk talks about why he needs a carbon tax in order to make his, you know, his clean vehicles more cost effective, I sort of talk about the, the broader virtues of a carbon tax. So, so look for look for that movie uh, before the flood. Uh, that that being, being part of that movie actually gave me my coolest 15 minutes of my life when I got to, at the Toronto Film Festival have drinks with Leonardo DiCaprio. It's not something the most academics get to do in a course of life. So I'm sure I'll never reach that level of coolness again in the rest of my life. Except maybe here, Frank. <laughs> um, yeah, I spoke to Joran Bauman as well um, recently in a podcast episode. 
and he spoke highly of you with his te- your 10 principles of economics. And he is also a very passionate supporter of the carbon tax. And I, I'm sure you have that relationship too. He's part of the Pigou Club. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. You're a bellman who some of you may have seen as being the, the stand-up comedian who did a, the, the take-up, yeah. take the stand-up of my uh, 10 principles uh, of economics, is a passionate environmental economist. And he is actually the intellectual force behind the, the ballot initiative in Washington State. So he's been a big proponent of that. And um, I've... I've been able to help him a little bit, but I think that he's clearly been a very big force in Washington State. And this could be a huge victory for the carbon tax movement. Yeah. I'd love to ask you also about health and healthcare. Again, something you're very in- yeah. much interested in. I'm not American, so, but I do know what's going on in terms of Obamacare and the difference, differences, the opinions of the Democrats and the Republicans in terms of that type of healthcare. You claim to, or you suggested in one of your posts that you were more of a libertarian than a communitarian yes. when it comes to uh, healthcare, or was that inequality? Well, I, I've, I've often, I've sometimes described myself as a libertarian at the margin. And by that I mean, I mean, when I see the libertarian party, they seem a little too extreme for me. But given where we're starting today, I think a little bit more reliance on free markets, individual responsibility, and personal liberty would be a good thing. Yeah. So I think, sort of, given where we are, sort of a small movement in the direction of the Libertarian Party would be a good thing. Although the, the huge leap that some of, the, some of the hardcore Libertarians want is a little too big, too big for me. So the, the healthcare issues, would you be in support of the, I suppose, Obamacare, or would you like an alternative in terms of what's being discussed at the moment to? Well, well you know, it's, funny. it's interesting that the Republican alternatives to Obamacare. With some ways very different, but in some ways kind of similar to Obamacare. John McCain, when he was running against Obama, was talking about policies like a refundable tax credit for, for, for buying health care in the private market. Well, refundable tax credit is not that different from a subsidy. <laughs> and so if you actually look at the de- details, they, were, they weren't as far apart as, you, as one, one might think. I think there was some differences to how, regula- how heavy-handed the regulation of the healthcare market would be. Um, how much money would be spent and so on. So I think there's, I think there were, there, there were differences, but the jet overall approach wasn't that different. Uh, in terms of Obamacare and specific, specifically, I think Obamacare had two stated objectives and had two real objectives, and I think those over, one of those two objectives overlapped. The two stated objectives were to um, increase coverage, healthcare coverage, health insurance coverage, and also to lower the cost of healthcare. I think it, I think it has done a, something to increase health insurance coverage, although not as much as they had hoped. I don't think it's done very much at all to lower insurance costs. Uh, in fact, there's been quite bad news lately about that for, I think, good adverse selection kind of reasons that economists understand. But I think there's another objective of Obamacare that was never really stated, which was, his, it was partly his desire to spread the wealth around. I mean, President Obama is clearly in favor of more income redistribution than we had previously, and part of that Part of the whole structure of taxes and subsidies of Obamacare was to have more income redistribution, uh, of more redistribution of resources, which I think was probably pretty clear in their own mind is what was where their objective is, but it was not, never a stated objective because I think that was not a politically popular one. I don't really, I think reducing healthcare costs was, was politically more popular. I think it's actually very, very hard to do. I mean, I'm a believer that one of the reasons we have increasing healthcare costs over time is because we probably should have increasing healthcare costs over time. As we get richer as a society, it makes sense 
to spend higher and higher fraction of income on on healthcare, or to put it, to put it most bluntly, think of sort of diminishing margin utility. As we get richer, we have more stuff, but some stuff runs into diminishing margin utility faster than others, right? As we get richer, we maybe instead of having two bathrooms in our house, we have three bathrooms in our house. But at some point, you kind of run into diminishing margin utility in bathrooms. I mean, going from three to eight really doesn't increase happiness very much. How many bathrooms do you really need? On the other hand, years of life, being able to live longer, doesn't seem to run into diminishing margin utility. I can imagine somebody saying, I don't want another bathroom, but very rarely do people say, I don't really want any years of life. Thank you very much, but 80 is fine. Um, people, so, I, so given that we don't really run into diminishing margin utility in life expectancy, as we get richer, spending a higher, higher fraction of our income on health, health care, kind of makes sense. Um, and so that doesn't mean our system is perfect, but, this, but, but the, the fact that, that we're spending a higher and higher fraction on health care is probably a good thing uh, and not something that we should necessarily be fighting. And would you have that same type of outlook in terms of pricing for goods in general and services? Because, again, I realized or I read that you paid $2,500 for a ticket for Hamilton, and <laughs> Matt Russo here in the audience, he paid $89 for the same ticket. <laughs> um, I, I tend to be favor market markets for allocating allocating resources, so I'm not against ticket resales. Um, you know, I've been, my wife has been wanting to see Hamilton for, for really since it came out. Um, and I've been looking at the prices, and I can think it's really so expensive. They've eventually got to come down, yeah. and they haven't been coming down. And uh, so we were having to be in New York, taking my my son on some college tours, and uh, and so I said, "Look, we're already in New York. I don't, I don't have to pay. I, I don't have to pay for a hotel. He's already here. That's not incremental cost. Let me go buy some Hamilton tickets." And they were extremely expensive. I've never paid that much for for tickets before, um, but. Um, but it was worth it. In a sense, it was a, it was a fantastic experience. I'm a big believer in actually paying for experiences rather than things. It's things just sort of accumulate dust. Experiences accumulate memories, and they, and and they think the think the memories are, are great. And Hamilton's just actually a great show. So I actually I did pay a lot, but I think it was worth every penny. Fantastic. And your book again, in principles. Um, it's as you said, if you want to write a book for the general audience and do quite well, you go for the principles level. But again, some people might have, especially students of late. I hope you don't mind me bringing this up. Some did a stage walkout in one of your classes in 2011 saying your book or your teaching, like anyone here who's teaching principles, is too, has too many e economic inequalities. We can't teach. We can't be pluralists. We don't have all the new economic thinking. Um, if you, I don't know if you had any, um, com or anything to comment on that in the past, but I'd love to hear. Yeah, there was a walkout in my class in 2011. It was a, it was basically a party Occupy Wall Street movement. It was the Occupy Wall Street sort of spread nationwide, and it was an Occupy Boston, and a, a subset of students um, sort of, maybe, I don't know, I guess 5 to 10% sort of stood up in the middle of class and sort of walked out and sort of protested and basically then went and joined the Occupy Boston movement, which was protesting outside the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. Uh, completely coincidentally, the lecture they walked out of was a lecture on inequality, and the, the facts of inequality, the forces driving economic inequality, I give that every year. So I think it's actually a really tremendously important topic to talk about. In fact, I'm giving it again next Friday. So, I, so it's a topic I talk about a lot. They were complaining that the, the, the course was too traditional economics, too much supply and demand. That didn't, actually, it's funny. The first draft of their letter that I saw said he, that he didn't, hasn't covered Keynes. It was kind of funny because I've done a lot of work in Keynes. And I explained to them, well, no, that's because micro is in the fall, macro is in the spring. We do macro, we do Keynes in the spring. And they, the next draft of the letter said, I didn't spend enough time covering Marx. Okay. 
And that was actually true. I don't spend any much time covering Marx. <laughs> I plead guilty. Um, I don't think Marx has had a profound impact on sort of modern e economics. So Marx doesn't show up prominently in my course. Uh, I view sort of my course, either my textbook or my course at Harvard, as tr I try to be sort of the, what I think of as the ambassador for the economics profession. Right? An ambassador tries to be a faithful representative of the people he's representing. So if you're an ambassador to England, you represent your country in England as faithfully as you can. But when I'm in the classroom, I try to represent the economics profession as faithfully as I can. And I think relatively few economists today think, oh, how do I think about the world it's fundamentally through Marx's Das Kapital? So because of that, I, Marx's Das Kapital doesn't show up prominently in my course. I should say, by the way, I was very pleased that the Harvard student newspaper, the Harvard Crimson, wrote a very nice editorial supporting the course in opposition to the, to the protesters who walked out. So I, I feel like, in the end, most of the students were on my side, yeah. although there were a subset of students, the Occupy students, who wanted to see more Marx. And when you worked as part of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Bush, you, along with others, looked at a report on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, mm -hmm. and you concluded that the systems there, there was systemic risk. But with any policy or any policy initiative that at government level, there's always the time lag. So how frustrating was that for you as an economist to see what your comments in, back in 2002 and 3 to bear fruit in 2007? Well, it, 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 it was frustrating. You know, we knew there were, there were fragilities in Fannie and Freddie. Uh, we didn't know that they, how deep they were in or that they would, they would come to the surface so quickly, and they did in a, a few years later. Uh, but we did push for a stronger regulator of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. But we got a lot of congressional pushback uh, because they, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac had lots of friends in Congress on both sides of the aisle. And so therefore we really did, did, didn't make much progress. You know, working in government is a tremendously frustrating experience because getting stuff done is hard. And writing a textbook is kind of fun because if I want to change one sentence to another sentence, I just change it. I'm, I'm done. I, I'm, I'm the decider, as George Bush would say. Uh, but in government, you know, it's part, you're part of a very large organization and if you want to change anything, you, you go through this very, very long process, and most of your good ideas go nowhere. Um, on the other hand, imagine your, your least favorite presidential candidate gets elected come November. You'll be happy that, it'll be, that he or she will have trouble getting his ideas through Congress. Right? Those are called checks and balances. And so even though working through go in government is really frustrating. It should be frustrating. It shouldn't be easy. Just because you go work in government and you, some, you, th you think you have a great idea, it shouldn't be easy to implement that idea. It should be hard to get stuff done because if, it's, if, if it was easy for the good people to get stuff done, it would be easy for the bad people to get stuff done, and that would be far, far worse. So while I, government is a frustrating experience, it's probably frust that, that frustration is probably a feature, not a bug. And did you find any, based on that experience, that frustration, did you see some aspects of economics differently, especially at, say, the, the principles level or maybe even beyond? Well, I did. I did. You know, I, 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 when I came back and I revised the book, you know, in small, subtle ways, I think what I learned in the Washington shows up. So there's a little bit, there's a couple paragraphs in Chapter 2 of the Principles book that says, why don't presidents always listen to their economic advisors? And it goes through a whole list of constraints that presidents operate under about how, oh, we don't, the president has to worry about how the press is going to report it. He has to worry about how this constituency group is going to react. He has to worry about how Congress is going to, what Congress is going to pass it or pass something else or attach some other bill to it. 
So all, I, I sort of saw all the constraints that presidents face in real time. And I, it, and that was reflected, I think, in, in how I talk about, about, about policy. And I think I'm much more forgiving when politicians don't get stuff done, uh, or when, because I think that Washington, it, it's, it's hard. It's very hard being president of the United States. Um, we see a growth in the levels of inequality over the last, say, quarter century. And uh, the top 1% in terms of their income levels are, has grown something like 129% over that uh, period of time. But what would the main unintended consequences be? Because when I look at that, I see the likes of, say, student debt growing phenomenally and the problems that students have when they face maybe the, the deciding even to go to college, that we could end up losing great people uh, later on because they decide with an opportunity cost not to go to college and to work elsewhere, that they're not empowered or enlightened by the educational system that you have here. Um, do you, does that worry you, or what do you feel is the most optimal decision that we oh, could do? It, just, it, does, it, it does worry. The rising inequality does worry me. Um, and I think the best diagnosis of it is a book by two of my Harvard colleagues, Claudia Golden and Larry Katz. The book is called The Race Between Education and Technology. The basic thesis of the book is that technology tends to increase the demand for skilled workers and tends to replace unskilled workers. Um, the skilled workers are going to use the new technology and the unskilled workers are going to be replaced by the technology. I saw this recently when I was in Toronto. I was at a restaurant in the airport while I was waiting for my plane. And I always thought of sort of a waiter as sort of a prototypical sort of job that requires relatively little skills and be hard to automate. But this restaurant had actually automated two of the three tasks that a waiter does. Now, what a waiter does is basically takes your order, brings you your food, and then brings you your check. The first and last of those have been replaced by machines. At every table, they had had an iPad, punched in your order in the iPad. Waiter didn't have to bring out your food. But then when you were done, there was another machine there that, that took your bill with a credit card. So, two of the, so they, they replaced two-thirds of the wait staff. So that's happening sort of throughout the economy, where sort of technology is slowly sort of replacing relatively unskilled jobs. What does that mean? What's the other force? Well, education turns unskilled workers into skilled workers. And so what, the main thing we need to do, I think, to fight inequality is increasing educational attainment. And that's sort of the conclusion of the Golden and Katz book. And the question is, how do you do that? How do you increase educational attainment? That's the hard part. I don't know the answer. A lot of economists are working on this. Um, and the question is, where do you spend the resources? I mean, Jim Heckman tells us that we need better preschooling for underprivileged kids. And maybe that's right. Um, you mentioned sort of the issue of financing higher education, how to finance it. I'm a little nervous about sort of the plan of let's make everything free, sort of the Bernie Sanders approach, because that means that's basically creating another entitlement. And we already have a bunch of entitlements we haven't quite figured out how to pay for. So increasing the number of entitlements is tricky. Um, I'm, I think there are creative ways to deal with it other than student debt. One of the ideas that's recently been tried at Purdue, I don't know if anybody's from Purdue's here, is Mitch Daniels, the president of Purdue, is trying a new repayment plan that's tur turning student debt into student equity. By that, it means that rat when you go to Purdue, they give you your tuition, and then you promise to pay a certain percentage of your income for the next, I don't know, whether it's 10 or 20 years. So you know, rather than having a fixed payment, like which is a debt obligation, you have an equity obligation. They're, you're basically now a partner with the, with the university, and the university sort of gets a small percentage of your income for the next 10 or 20 years. So it's, sort of, it's just kind of a loan in a way. It's, a fine, it's outside financing, but it's a financing that spreads the risk between the college and the university. And that's the kind of thing, an, an interesting experiment. Yeah, I came across an article one time, uh, I, I forget what university is, but the, the head of the university, she 
implemented or adopted policies that try to attract outside funding from local companies and to help support uh, the student debt and to offer them as true scholarships. And she has dramatically reduced the level of student debt in her. Well, that's right. No, I mean, one way to do it would be to actually get, the, get outside investors. Purdue is, I think Purdue is, is, is serving as the outside investor in a way. But you, know, you, can get, you, you can imagine an outside investor sort of coming in and saying, oh, I'll pay for your four years of tuition at this, at this college. Um, and in, in, in exchange for my paying your four years of tuition, you're going to pay me a percentage of your income for the next, you know, you know, two percent of your income for the next twenty years. Sort of like a it's a bit like a voluntary tax in a way. It's fine financing education, uh, and that that investor would then have all sorts of incentives to make sure you're successful. He might help you get internships. He might give you advice as to what courses to take. He might say, you know, I know that course in art history sounds really fascinating, but maybe we'll take that economics course instead. Um, <laughs> Uh, so the investor, becoming sort of a partner with the student, would sort of be more fully invested than a, a bank, which is a debt holder, which doesn't really care other than sort of getting its debt plus interest back. I've been to a couple of the um, presentations over the last two days, and I'm really um, astonished by the amount of creativity that some of the educators are bringing into the teaching of economics. And I'd love to, if you have any advice or any support that you'd like to give you know, where you think economics is going to go in terms of, say, online technology or popular culture or whatever it might be to help. That's a great question. I mean, I, I think there's no one right way to do it. No. I think different instructors try different strategies, and this is why I love these kind of events, because you can see different strategies that other people are trying and see what works for you. Um, I think ultimately what's important for the student is to be infected by the enthusiasm of the instructor. And... That, that's what's really important. If the instructor is enthusiastic about his, his or her field and conveys that enthusiasm to the student, that's going to get the student enthusiastic. And there's no one way to sort of generate that enthusiasm. You know, different people have different interests. Um, you know, one of the questions about technology is people, are, I think there's a lot of changes in technology, you know, things like online platforms. Some people have worried that, oh, some technology is going to replace face-to-face instruction. Now, what will, will, will we really need as many professors? Are we, are, are, are we professors going to be replaced by technology in the same way that those waiters in Toronto Airport have been? I'm not very worried about that because I think that there's something about face-to-face interaction in the classroom that's uh, really important. I'm not, when I, I, I teach now group, students in groups of 700, it's a pretty big class. I've often, also, also in the past, taught freshman seminars, which I think is a much, much better experience with a student. When I teach a freshman seminar, it's me and 12 students. And, if you, and that's, I think, the ideal sort of learning experience for the students, because they really, I think they get to know me better. They get the sense of enthusiasm I have, feel about the field. And if you think about it, that's not that different a technology from what Socrates used 2,000 years ago. Right? We, we live in a, an industry that's the classic sort of bowel disease where technology really doesn't change. The world gets richer, but our technology for imparting knowledge is pretty much the same. Um, and I'm guessing that even though we'll be using more online resources and so on, that face-to-face interaction between student and teacher is, is still going to be paramount. Greg, if you could time travel, what era would you like to go back to and who would you like to meet and what conversation would you have with them? Oh, who would I want to meet? Hmm. Oh, I'd probably go back about 100 years and meet Keynes. So I really think that Keynes was really one of the most interesting economists. Maybe Adam Smith. I mean, but but, but I said I'm a macroeconomist, and so the the, the, the ideas that Keynes had. Um, I mean, I, there's so much misunderstanding of what Keynes really meant. 
And there's a lot of debate is what, what Keynes really meant. And then there's a lot of people saying, oh, Keynes, well, Keynes didn't really make any important contributions. And people like Robert Lucas have denigrated a lot of Keynesian contributions in some of his writings. I would love to, with the benefit of today's knowledge, saying we've been talking about your ideas now for 100 years. Here's some of the things we've thought about your ideas. Which ones can we, can, do you agree with? Which ones don't? Are we going off, are we going off the right, wrong track? So I think if I had to go back, that'd probably be the person I'd want to have dinner with. And finally, I'll ask one more question before we hand this to the floor. Okay. Um, I suppose writing tips, you know, if you had two main writing tips, I know you said discipline and maybe get up early and write the two, but. Um, writing tips. Yeah. Um, I recommend a book by William Zinzer called On Writing Well. And I, I read a lot of books about writing. So I, I like hearing about how other writers write, and I get some ideas about how they approach their um, their uh, discipline. Um, but my, the, probably the best one about ba- writing basic nonfiction is William Zinzer's On um, on Writing Well. I said, oh, well, by the way, th- that I think revision is also an important part. I remember the, um, when I was young, relatively new at Harvard, I got to have dinner with John Kenneth Galbraith. And John Kenneth Galbraith is, of course, one of the great writers uh, in, in economics. He's a brilliant stylist. And I asked him, so the same question you asked me, which is, you know, do you have any tips for writing? How, do you, how is it that you write so incredibly well? And he says, I revise things many, many, many times. And around the eighth draft, I finally get that spark of spontaneity that everybody loves. <laughs> so so we have some questions from the floor? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Hi, I'm Susan Riley at Florida State College at Jacksonville. Um, I took a photograph with you before and already put it on my students' Facebook pages, and they have requested a pop-up version for your next edition. (laughs) We'll work on that. There you go. (laughs) What do you wait for the mic? Because I think this this is being broadcast, and people won't be able to hear you. Well, I just wanted to ask you what your answer to yourself would have been this morning based on the question that you asked, Dr. Gorting. Oh, about inflation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about interest rates, um, about negative interest rates and zero interest rates. Um, so let me sort of sort of say a, little, a few observations about that. I was actually at a conference at the Boston Fed uh, just a few weeks ago where I talked about this. One of the big surprises is that, is that some other countries have gone to negative interest rates. We used to think of zero as the lower bound on interest rates, and um, some other countries have gone negative. Well, I think we can go negative. I don't think we can go very negative. The reason we thought there was a zero lower bound is people said, oh, we're lending money at zero. People just hold cash. Well, it turns out that holding large amounts of cash is inconvenient. If you have to go hold $100 million of $10 bills, that's, like, that's, a, lot, that's a lot of suitcases. So it turns out people are willing to sort of lend money, obviously in big money managers, not sort of you or I, but people are willing to lend money at negative interest rates if somebody else holds it for them at small negative interest rates. But if interest rates became very negative, people would figure out ways to hold cash. They would, they'd buy the vaults and store it and stuff. So you really can't go very, very negative. If you can't go very, very negative, that creates a problem for monetary policy. There's, I don't think there's anything in economic theory that says that real interest rates should be positive, especially real interest rates on safe assets. So real interest rates, so, so perhaps we were, we're moving to a world where we're going to have negative real interest rates more often. Maybe even deeply negative real interest rates more often. And how are we going to do that? Well, if inflation is is two um, percent, then you can't get interest rates much below negative two. Maybe we, sometimes we need to. And indeed, Taylor rules. My favorite Taylor rules had you know interest rates at negative three or four hundred basis points during the financial crisis. So what do you do? Um, well, one possibility is to raise 
the inflation target. Uh, there's, there's nothing magical about two. If you look at the history of why central banks around the world cho- chose two, it was kind of arbitrary. It was like sort of, they, it was sort of picked out of the hat by some central banker in New Zealand and everybody else in the central bank community said, sure, why not? Like, so there's nothing special about two, so why not go up higher? I sometimes have to quip that, you know, why not target inflation of 3.14? And it makes sense that we call it pi in all our textbooks. Um, uh, but, you know, Larry Ball has written papers saying it should be four, and some people have proposed five. And I don't think we really know why it's a bad idea. One thing I will say that the public hates inflation a lot more than economists can understand. So I, I understand why central bankers are reluctant to um, go that way, uh, because if, if, if Janet Yellen ever said, oh, I decide that 5% is a better inflation rate than 2%, so that's what we're doing, we're going to target from now on, she'd, she'd get killed. Uh, so it's not, it's, an, it's a, so I think it's something that academics can talk about. I don't think it's anything that, it's not ready for prime time yet. Uh, another possibility, by the way, to get, if you want negative interest rates instead of higher inflation, is to just get rid of currency. The reason we can't have interest rates arbitrarily negative is because people would hold currency. But we can just abolish currency. People have thought about that. Um, you know, you can just imagine one day saying, from now on, all money has to be held in the bank. So put your money in the bank. And then when you go to the bank, if you want to take it out, you can transfer it to another bank. But you can't take it out as currency because there's no currency anymore because it's transferring from bank to bank. And once, once there's only demand deposits, then the Fed can set interest rates as negative as it wants. Then there's no zero, there's no lower bound at all. Uh, that's another idea that I don't think central bankers are going to propose anytime mm-hmm. soon. No. I, uh, I wrote um, a column about some of these ideas maybe three years ago when I first hit the zero lower bound, basically exploring this for the New York Times. And it was the only column I wrote for the New York Times where I had members of the general public writing to the president of my university telling me I should be fired <laughs> because I was talking about abolishing cash, negative interest rates. And I mean, this was considered, this was, they viewed this as basically tantamount to theft. And you can kind of see that if you have money and you're going to do negative. It sounds a little bit like theft, doesn't it? It's a slow form of theft. So, it, it, so I can see why this is not uh, very popular. True, President Faust, by the way, was very nice to write back to these people explaining that he, she didn't fire faculty just because they espoused crazy ideas. That she did, they didn't they have nobody left to teach the classes. Uh, but um, uh, but I, I can see why these ideas are fun to discuss at, as an academic, but not something that any practical central banker is sort of ready to sign on to. What's your biggest challenge in teaching? My biggest, you know, because I teach 700 students, my biggest challenge is getting to know them. Um, over the course of a year, most of them will, be, will never have a personal conversation with me out of 700. That's just a fact. Now, lately I've been doing things like taking, after my lectures, I give, I have lotteries often and have to take a, a small group out to lunch. So I'll take like seven of them out to lunch, um, which the university nicely subsidizes. So, uh, so I've been trying to get them to know that way, but it's, it's, I think it's, it's frustrating for me that to not, to, to not make the class as personal as, I, as I'd like it to be. Now, they do meet in small sections with section leaders or grad students, so I have a whole army of section leaders, you know, 35 of them or something, or meeting them with groups of 20, something like that. So they get to know their section leaders a lot, but I still seem pretty distant from them. I remember once walking to a Starbucks in Harvard Square, and the guy behind the counter um, looked, you know, I took my credit card, looked at it, and stared at it for the longest time. And then he looked at me and he said, Professor Mankiw? <laughs> and he said, I said, yes. I said, I'm an Ek-10. I never knew you were so tall. 
because he always sat in the balcony. And from the balcony, I looked really small down there. <laughs> so, you know, that's the, um, the it's a fortunate thing when you teach a very, very large class. I'd love to teach it smaller classes, but I, you know, just the way it works. It's a very, it's the most popular class on campus usually. Uh, so it's, this is a very big class. And I don't want to turn anybody away. I never, I never dream of turning anybody away. And even when we have like local high school students who want to audit, I say, sure, the more the merrier. I want more people to learn economics. So I never turn anybody away, ever. But the, the cost of that is, is a big and often impersonal class. Hi, I'm Santosh Kumar from Sam Houston, Texas. Uh, could you share your thoughts on Brexit, on the, on the impact of Brexit on the U.S. economy? Uh, should we be concerned or uh, we are Im- immune to Brexit? Like, like a lot of people, I was surprised and disappointed at the Brexit decision. I, uh, I understand how the, a lot of the British public didn't like outsourcing a lot of their policymaking to Brussels, and there's a, there's a certain loss of national sovereignty. On the other hand, I basically think I'm a big believer that free trade is a good thing and that the reducing, reducing of barriers among Europe was by and large a good thing. And so I think it's on that a negative for the British economy, how, how big it's still to be seen. On the U.S. economy, I don't think it's going to be a huge issue by itself. But I do think the, the Brexit sentiment is not that different from the anti-trade, anti-immigrant sentiment that we've seen in the United States. So the thing, think the rise of, you know, Bernie Sanders is very much opposed to trade and NAFTA. Donald Trump is opposed to trade and NAFTA and is very anti-immigrant. Um, I think that's, that's just a very similar sentiment than, than we've seen, um, in, in, in the UK. And indeed, you see that even mainstream politicians are buckling under. You know, Hillary Clinton, who's changed her mind on TPP, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, I think it's another, that sort of politicians feeling the pressure. So I don't think that would, that would I, I don't think she's really read the fine print and decided, oh, it's not the gold standard after all. The, um, I think she just realized the political winds were, were blowing in a very bad direction from a trade perspective. Some of my friends in Washington are hopeful that after the election, that TPP will be passed in the lame duck section, because I think a lot of the sort of the, the adults in the room, both the Democratic and Republican Party, know it's the right thing to do, and are hoping that they can sort of get it passed sort of in no, late November, December. And so though Hillary, I'm assuming Hillary Clinton's going to win, Hillary Clinton becomes president, she can say, well, I was opposed to this, but it's already passed, so it's a done deal. So she's going to have to, that, she's going to have to flip-flop again on it. She hope that the goal is to take it off her plate, so she so that, so the right thing can happen without her having to do what would be very politically hard for her to do, which is say, you know, I was right the first time, um, which is unlikely. But so so I don't think Brexit by itself is is going to be a, have a big impact on this economy. But I do kind of worry about the global trend toward what to me seems like a bit of xenophobia, which I think is not a good thing. Andy Knoll from North Carolina State University, thank you again for your textbooks. I have a teaching question for you. In your principal's course, when the students are meeting in the small sections with the grad student TAs, are the grad students teaching them content, and it, or are they going over problems and applications? And if they're teaching them content, how do you coordinate and, 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 and structure that? Yes, they are, in our class, they are teaching them content. The TAs actually have a lot of responsibilities. Um, and we coordinate that by having very detailed lecture notes. So we give them notes section by section. So we basically say, on this section, these are the, these are the concepts you have to cover. We even give them some examples. They can substitute other examples. But, but section by section, they know, they walk in and they have, you know, 10 pages of lecture notes for that one hour section saying, this is the material the students have to walk away from this section knowing. 
so it's, it's very coordinated. We have common exams across the whole, the whole um, course. And so the students really have to learn the same material. Greg, thank you for your interview and for all that. I know we have come to you and asked you a lot of questions just throughout today and yesterday. So I have a question. So we mentioned Brexit. We're all witnessing an interesting political rhetoric today with the presidential elections. We see this very worrisome global trends like rise of populism, rise of um, political polarization, global and worldwide, accompanied by economic slowdown, increasing political risk in a lot of emerging markets. So what does the future look like? Is there hope? And it's also interesting how for a long time it was the economy stupid. And today it's so much not about economy. It has become about identity and it has become about a lot about border control and immigration. And that's what we see, especially in Brexit and uh, in the United States. And so to us, people who are passionate about economic education, to me it's heartbreaking to see how the most basic economic principles and matters and concepts are being so misunderstood by the public. So we have all this technology and new platforms, but the level of economic education by the public, at least I feel like, has declined over the years. I think we live in particularly challenging times. I mean, and, and if you look... If you look, there's two sort of graphs that I think are particularly important to understanding why people are so unhappy right now. One is if you just look at the growth rate of either GDP per person or real disposable income per person over the past 10 years, it's the worst 10 years since the data was constructed. I mean, it's just, we've had a very 10-year growth rate. Part of it's the, the deep recession we've experienced in 2008, but it's not only that, because we had a deep recession in, in 1982, but that 1982 recession was followed by a rapid recovery. Here we had a very deep recession followed by a very meager recovery. So as a result, we've had a sort of a very slow growth 10-year period in terms of average incomes. And in addition, we live in a time of very high inequality. So the, the slow growth and this, this high inequality, and that's going to make the median person feel pretty bad. And so there's a reason, there's a reason they feel bad. Now, the, I think the diagnoses that we're getting, that, oh, it's all tra bad trade agreements, I think that's wrong-headed. The question is, what is the diagnosis? Um, I think the inequality part is best understood through the race between education and technology. I don't know the slow growth part, but I think one interesting hypothesis, sort of depressing hypothesis, but interesting, is Bob Gordon's book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, that came out last year. And his basic story is it's, it's also technologically determined. His view is that previous generations had major technological innovations and while we're still experiencing technological progress, they're not the life-changing kind of technological progress that previous generations had. So previous generations had things like electrification, indoor plumbing. Um, we get 140-character Twitters, <laughs> right? So you, know, so you you may be a fan of Twitter or not, but presumably you'd give up your Twitter account much sooner than you'd give up electrical indoor plumbing or electrification. So sort of previous generations just saw bigger changes in their lifestyle. Uh, than we, we've experienced recently. And so his, Bob Gordon's view is just the nature of technological progress has slowed down. Innovations just have not been as profound. Now Gordon's pessimistic prognosis is that that's likely to continue. His view is we're just now in an era where the kind of technological advance we have is just not as life-altering and therefore average incomes are going to grow slower. If that's true, that's kind of 
depressing. And the question is, what do you do about that? So, so if you're, if, let's suppose you're in this era of sort of slow growth and high inequality. What do you do? Um, well, 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 the sad fact is that the government, policymakers always pretend as if they can control everything. And a lot of things they just can't control. And I'm not sure anybody would elect a politician that was completely honest who said, yeah, we have problems, but you know, some problems I can't solve. Right? Nobody would really, that, that doesn't really sound like somebody who, but that might be the right answer. What, what tools do we have? Well, one is tax policy. Tax policy can be used to um, spread, the, spread the wealth around, as Barack Obama has, by making the tax code more progressive. But I'm a big, I'm a bit enough of a believer that there's a trade-off between efficiency and equality to think that if you do make the world more equal through a more progressive tax system, then you're probably going to slow growth a little bit by making the world a little less efficient. And so you can make one of the problems better and a little other problem worse. Or we could focus on what I think is important is just human capital. It gets back to education. I'm a big believer in education as being tremendously important. And if you provide more education to people, that could both potentially address the equality issue by changing the mix of skilled and unskilled workers and also promote economic growth because human capital is an important component of, of capital. Um, so, I, so I really do believe education is profoundly important. But e even if that's true, it's a very, very slow-acting solution. I mean, let's suppose Jim Heckman's right, and that more preschool for underprivileged kids is going to do wonders. Let's suppose that's true. I don't think we know for sure that's true, but let's imagine that is true. And let's suppose we get the policies immediately to increase preschool attendance for people who need it. Well, those kids, who are age four now, aren't going to enter the labor force for 20 years. So they're not going to see anything from the success of that policy for 20 years. That requires a tremendous amount of patience, even if it's the right thing to do. So I think that the problems are hard, the solutions are, aren't easy, and even the ones solutions that are likely, that, that can potentially work, aren't going to work fast. That's a, that's a hard message to sell if you're a politician. Um, I think economics education is tremendously important because I think the more we as edu economics educators educate the population, educate the next generation of voters, the easier it is to, for politicians to tell the voters the truth and be, and be believed. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.